Chapter thirty five of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty five. Amy sat quite still in the window seat next day and heard Jeremy's tread booming on the flagged street. She supposed it was his, for she did not especially recognize it. But very few people passed along North Street. It led nowhere. It was only the best view of the cathedral. His step on the stair did not excite her, nor his kiss, which she sweetly, demurely returned, since to refuse it would lead to premature discussion. "'Dear Amy, I am so glad to see you again. Are you?' "'Delighted,' he laughed. "'What a society answer! But I am not going to worry myself any more about you. Your attitude just gives me discomfort, not grounds for anxiety. It only means the strong revulsion that women are apt to feel.' You hate the sight of your master. Am I not your master? In a sense, yes. He sat down and took her hand. Yet sometimes I begin to think I have not really got you, not as much as I should like to suppose. You elude me. I wish I could read you. You see, I can be honest too. No matter, it will come in time. Why have you got your hat on? Because I was just going out. Then you would have missed me whom you have forced to come back for you on a good working morning. You contemplate it calmly. Well, shall we go together? Come for a turn on the motor. We must walk to it. I left it at the garage. Naturally, said she sensibly, it would never do to bring it up here. Identify us at once. Besides, it wouldn't even go on these cobblestones. Well, dearest, will you use it or no? No. Was it me or the motor you shuddered at? I wouldn't ask if I were you. Say no more about it. It will be wiser. I would be wise. What shall I do to please you? Take me for a walk. Take me to St. Gundred's. I've been reading that book about the dissolution of the monasteries. Seven miles? That would tire you out. Why not? This is awful. Well, we will go. But I must eat first. It is one o'clock. Amy rang, ordered lunch, and watched him eat. She had had a glass of milk at eleven. She sat at the opposite side of the table with her little hard-worked hands propping her face. She was doggedly pensive. Dan disliked a woman to be coolly thoughtful in his presence, almost as much as he objected to see her sewing in the same distinguished company. He made several attempts to distract her, but in vain, and a slight residue of huff was perceptible in his manner when, having lunched, he rose threw away his napkin, lit a cigarette, and said, like a schoolboy, "'Come on.' "'May I kiss you?' he asked solemnly, holding the door open for her. "'I will suffer it,' she replied lightly. She was thinking of something else. "'I remember something you once said in that connection,' he remarked as they walked down the street together. He was still angry. "'Another theory of yours. I see, of course, that you merely tolerate the—' lighter tokens of my affection. The day, Amy, when you admit to the lust of kissing, I may take it, may I not, that you, my mistress, have acquired some little love for me? Quite true, she said, looking yearningly across at the cathedral. He had noticed the test then. A woman, then, I ask for purposes of information, can manage to live with the man she does not love and be everything to him, yet only suffer patiently 
what we may call the small change of passion. Have I got you right? Yes, she answered composedly, a little hurt by his antagonistic attitude. The greater need not, as you insinuate, include the less. The lust to kiss, as you call it, is an infallible proof of true love, with me at least. I can perfectly conceive of an honest woman's marrying a rich man for his money and so on, and being a good amenable wife to him in the ordinary sense, while feeling herself quite unable to kiss him and little things like that, that nothing but love excuses, and that you simply can't bring yourself to do unless you are in love. You are a most strange woman. Unsatisfactory, rather. But charming, very. I don't mean to be. Don't mean to be charming? No, I meant, if anything, to be unsatisfactory. Yes, and you succeed. You have developed all the arts of the adventurous while I have been away. What have you been doing with yourself? Nothing very wicked. Going to church and talking to the verger. His name's Verall. He says being about the church so much has made a pagan of him. Disillusioned him, eh? A very common thing with experts. The more he knows of Gothic, the more he loses sight of the raison d'etre of Gothic. But I, who have picked open his mind with my trowel of doubt, I shouldn't be surprised if I was to die a good Catholic. They motored to St. Gundred's after all, and did the seven miles in fifteen minutes. The pace reminded Amy of the night of her abduction, the clinging clematis in the hedges of the narrow lanes that led to the priory, seemed as they had done then, to reach out their tendrils to arrest her. But she was better now. The three weeks she had spent in Blois as Mrs. Wilson had done her good, and as the fresh air poured into her lungs, it stimulated her brain and made her feel apt for effort, strong to say what had to be said and do what had to be done. They drew up on the little green that comprised St. Gundred's once holy domain. The clever old monks seemed, as usual, to have chosen the only possible site for miles, a level dell of fat pasture-land sheltered in the arm of the river, with high cliffs opposing on the other side. The caretaker's cottage, built out of the derelict stones of the abbey, occupied one side of the green, and down to the water's edge the forlorn ruins dotted the other in their sad, draggled way. It was peace, perfect peace, the peace of renunciation and failure. The grey light slept on the haggard central arch, the murmur of the durin was sweetly audible as soon as the snorting, puffing creature that had brought them hither was safely stabled in the adjacent shed. The custodian, a motherly ample woman, who entertained shy lovers all through the week and roaring brake-loads on holidays, waddled down her miniature garden walk at the sounds of their approach, and now took their order for tea to be laid in the little room where the death-watch ticked by day, full of the scent of mould and with the broken spinet in the corner. Mr. Dand gaily alluded to these advantages. It was to be ready in ten minutes. Meantime they wandered down to the bank of the river, and Amy sat down on a low stone at which he demurred. "'Dare you sit down? It is late in the year. Change! Here's a wooden stump, safer.' Amy for once appreciated being looked after, and obeyed. "'What makes the trees look black instead of green?' she asked. "'And the water seems whipped up into knife-blades. 
iron-grey tones in everything. Sympathy with your mood, I suppose, and a touch of east wind. My mood? It's a black one, a mood in which you hate me, at least I am sure you don't love me. Her startled face looked up at his. You guess? I said a mood, Amy, he replied almost sternly, and I hope I know enough of your sex to be able to make allowance for moods. You are very kind, but suppose it is a permanent one. We'll see, he said grimly, pulling her veil that the wind had caught and torn from its moorings back into its place on her hat. Oh, don't, she cried. I hate anybody to touch my head. I'm like a cat when you touch its whiskers. Nerves again? No, not nerves, Jeremy. My clear and unbiased knowledge of myself. I have brought you here today to say it. Please listen kindly, as if I were a subordinate at the works giving up his place. Jeremy, you have described my mood accurately, I am sorry to say, and it is to be lasting. I don't love you, I never shall love you, and we ought certainly to part. It would be indecent to go on like this. We have no sanction for living together, according to me. Jeremy Dan laughed, long and loud, till the echoes of the old abbey rang again. There was a nervous quality about his laughter, which she was too excited to apprehend. She was hurt by his levity. You laugh! You laugh! And yet you have always known how I think of these things. You know that I consider that when two people really love each other, no power on earth, no bonds of ill-advised marriage, need keep them apart. But on the other hand, Nothing should induce them to remain together in a state of sexual servitude if that sanction is not there. There's where the impropriety comes in to me. I like, I have a right to be taken seriously. Yet you laugh? Dand muttered something incoherent. He was not ready with his answer. She resumed, Do you know what your laugh means to me? You're saying, Well, here's a good one been to me what she has been, and now wants to pretend, oh, how can a man laugh? Dear, I beg your pardon, he said at last, and I assure you, you are wrong for once. I laughed because I had, as it were, temporarily lost the power of inhibition. My brain refused to send out the appropriate manifestation of my sentiments. I should not know hot from cold right now. Amy, I feel for you what most people call love, passionate love, and do give me credit for having the generosity to admit it in the face of your awful and sudden attack on the very seat of my reason and my vanity. It is a man's whole mature life and being that you propose to deal with and overthrow in a twopenny-halfpenny mood of remorse or what not that you ought to be ashamed of entertaining, and will be in an hour. You are ill, I know. You have been sorely tried. You are not yourself but it isn't like you to give careless expression to a mere passing emotion, a tick of the brain, a missed cylinder. Yes, you are disappointed in me. I know I am acting out of character. Perhaps my character is changing. But I know I mean what I say, and I have thought it over for long. I can't help your man's vanity that you say I have injured. It must take its chance. Remember, you left me, at your own request, he interrupted. How feminine to reproach me. Well, I prefer you to be feminine. It's a good sign. 
I am not so much feminine as business-like, she said sadly. I asked you, two days ago, to leave me quite alone, to stand clear and let me focus things properly. I wanted to learn myself, find out what I was and what I wanted and what line I should take to keep me true to us both. I suspected myself, if you know what I mean. I do. You were desirous of groping about in your mental and moral reserves. You wished to go on exploiting yourself, discovering fresh moods and allowing them to dominate you. I know your moods and their explanation better than you do yourself. My physiological knowledge tells me that this phase of your mentality, let's be scientific, this mood that disturbs you so much, is a perfectly natural one, born of enforced idleness. Have you ever been so idle since the day you were born? It is merely the backwash of a great emotion that has altered and changed you forever. You ought not to have taken any notice of it. You should have sat on it, snubbed it, for it isn't a valid excuse for not loving me. There's the inn-woman calling us to come in and have tea. Let us go. We can finish this discussion inside if you care to. Come. I'm glad she interrupted us, said Amy, for you had simply taken to bullying me at the last. Possibly, said he, smiling down at her. Come, dear, contrary angel. Amy took hold of the hand he extended to her, as if she was a child, and suffered herself to be led in the direction of the cottage. She was conscious of a sudden warmth of liking for him, and feared dreadfully that it was because, as she said, he had been bullying her. Almost reluctantly, she was forced to abandon the mutual pose of alliance to walk single file. The narrow garden walk, bordered with cockle-shells, that led to the door, made it imperative. The custodian stood on the threshold, a vast, circumambient apron, with a kind smile of like dimensions, brooding over it. She was so used to lovers. "'Here you come,' she cried, "'and a nice hot girdle-cake have made for ye.' They smiled and promised to do justice to it. The door of the musty, damp little room was closed on them. Amy poured out tea, handing him his cup with an almost maternal air. Her eyes resting on this man she was determined to throw over, tenderly. For she felt that the sudden unexpected efflorescence of strong regard that had surged up in her made it difficult for her to combat him in the interests of the position she had adopted, and which she knew to be a well-considered and permanent one. A cruel ultimatum, delivered from the citadel, to a courteous and delightful enemy without, with the under-knowledge that some part, at least, of the outer walls of the fortress were cracking. It was hideously complicated. Manlike, he correctly interpreted only a portion of the signalling, and fancied the fortress meant complete surrender. He sought her hand among the teacups. "'Amy, my mistress, my love, are you not a little ashamed of your backsliding just now?' She shook her head and tried to speak quietly, without any distracting signs of the emotion she felt. "'I meant what I said, Jeremy. I suppose, like everyone else, I am built in compartments. In some of them, I don't deny it, there is a breach. But the main one is quite—how shall I say it?—quite love-tight. I don't love you enough to go on living with you, that's the plain truth. Perhaps to comfort your vanity— you own to vanity. You may say that the faculty of love is half atrophied in me, 
I don't know. She used her habitual phrase with a sad little toss of the head. Perhaps I saw life and sad, ugly, earnest things too early and too much. Other things than love have always seemed more important to me, the need for bread, a roof over one's head, and so on. And I have no mysticism. You have often told me so. The power to love strongly goes with that, with the religious instinct. I thought so the other day in the cathedral. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed, effectively discouraged. "'You are a damned little theorizer. "'It is the only thing that makes me think you are perhaps right. "'Women who love can't theorize.' "'No, and I don't really seem to know you, Jeremy. "'I've never been able to set up that Freemasonry that lovers do. "'Real lovers, I mean. "'I feel quite shy about using your Christian name. "'And when I hear your step on the stairs, "'my heart doesn't move one bit the faster. "'I don't long to touch your hand or your cheek.' I never dream of you. Oh, for God's sake, stop this enumeration of my failures to touch your imagination, he cried irritably. And do you know what you are doing? You are killing my remorse. You are letting me out, taking one load off my mind at least and putting on another. Amy, listen to me. We have sinned and suffered together. I cannot let you go. You will have to, she said sadly. Be nice about it, dear, can't you? Treat me like a man. Don't encourage me to behave like a woman. And don't you encourage me to be a cad. He strode away from her neighborhood. His eyes rested almost with dislike on this little quiet girl who was defying him, Jeremy Dand, the king of Oldfort. He spoke coldly. Why should you want to deprive me of the privilege of making you the only reparation in my power? I swear I meant to do it. It is so easy nowadays. "'You mean marry me,' said Amy contemptuously. "'But marriage would make things no better, from my point of view. "'Haven't you understood me? "'If I loved you, I shouldn't care twopence whether you married me or not.' "'That is as well,' said he, flinging his hat that he had just taken up, "'down violently on the spinet, and seizing the handle of the door. "'For I couldn't manage it. My wife isn't dead.' Amy raised her head with a jerk and looked him full in the face. There was no expression in her eyes. That was what calmed him. His hand fell and his jaw. "'Go and pay for the tea,' she said. When Mr. Dand came back, Amy had resumed her gloves. She handed him his hat. They went out. "'So that was what your remorse meant, poor Jeremy,' she said gently when they were clear of the cottage. Why did you deceive me? He answered sullenly. I wasn't sure, or rather, I was practically sure. The doctor said there wasn't one chance in a thousand that she would ever regain consciousness. I came straight out of the house after getting his verdict, and I saw you sitting there, helpless, silly with horror and shock, without a soul to look after you. Edith was dying, practically dead, in the cottage inside. I looked upon you as mine, even then. Your health was the point. Your recovery was my business and no one else's. I put you in the motor and carried you off to a nursing home, and told them all that I had done so. Then I came back to Edith, and was told she had rallied in a marvellous way. I never expected it. You won't believe me, but I was glad. We couldn't move her, not for another month. 
I turned the people out of the cottage and put in nurses. It was a long business. I saw you both every day, sandwiched between two women. I did my work as well. Neither of you had any cause to complain of want of attention, but it about finished me. My nerves went completely. I moved her. Then it was a question of moving you, giving you a change. You, stupidly, dearest, asked me outright to come to you at Blois, in your innocence I see now. I thought then. You gave me all sorts of absurd reasons for not needing chaperonage. You rather defied me. Your coldness that you were so proud of angered me. That, and my discovery that you thought my wife was dead, settled the matter. I suppose that idea of yours did modify your attitude towards me a bit, in spite of your theories of free sexual union. I ought, of course, to have put you right about Edith's recovery, but I didn't. It gave me a sort of shock when I found you thought she was cleared out of our way, and I got from that moment a hazy sort of plan of turning your mistake to my own profit and your loss. Though I gave you a chance even after that, you remember. I asked you if you wouldn't like the old ladies to come and see you. That would have prevented it, of course. Well, you declined politely. You played my game, the seducer's game. Now you know it all, the reprehensible way in which the molecules of my brain chose to adjust themselves. I can't help it. Well then, Blois, I came, you were sweet, and I conquered. Caesar was a cad, but we're all like him. I took you, and I'm not sorry. Nor am I, she said honestly and kindly. It was rather my own fault, as you say. Is she quite recovered now, then? She sat up yesterday for the first time. Ah, well, well. Do get the car, won't you, and let us go back to Blois, she urged with sudden impatience. Amy, forgive me. Yes, of course, only let us get back. I am so suddenly tired. It is tiring work, thrashing out things. Poor dear Amy. He took her hand for a moment after they had got into the car, until his own were claimed by the imperative wheel. The desolate fragments of the home of the Cistercian monks seemed to crowd round them and complain of injustice, as they slowly steamed across the priory green, up the hilly field track that led to the gate of the domain. Amy leaned round and looked back at the ruins. Look, she said, never a slate between them and the cruel rain that wears them away. Something more important than our affairs was thrashed out there and came to grief a few hundred years ago. In the face of all that, lying useless off the track, like a great engine derailed, I cannot somehow feel as if I mattered so very much. Amy, you are going mad. Engines off the line indeed. You are off the line yourself. Why did I ever bring you to Blois? That did it. You'll leave me and become a Catholic. Of course you matter, you little fool. You matter intensely. You are a bit of good stuff. You must not be lost. Perhaps you are thinking that I am hardly in a position to give myself airs of patronage. Does your disagreeable silence mean that? Is my silence offensive? I don't mean it to be. I have had a shock. Ah, you admit it. You are human, after all. He kissed her. Amy, I know which door to open, and I have the key. 
you must not oppose me. I will act for all our goods. Edith is dead to me from this moment. Edith must go to the wall. Edith, poor soul, must accommodate herself. Still you say nothing? What can I say? You are relieving your own feelings by talking nonsense. Why should I prevent you? I have feelings too, but silence suits them best. Don't run over that dog. Dan swore a little as he avoided the dog. End of chapter 35 Recorded by Lisa Reichert